0: This is Street Signals, a weekly conversation about markets and macro brought to you by State Street Global Markets. I'm your host, Tim Graff, head of macro strategy for EMEA at State Street, based in London. Rates keep rising, the dollar keeps strengthening with them, and the longer it goes on, the more worrisome it seemingly gets for risky assets, which had a pretty bad finish to what was otherwise a lackluster third quarter. As October and the fourth quarter begins, it's time to take a moment and assess whether these moves can be maintained or if we're near a natural breaking point. This is a discussion I've been looking very much forward to having. Joining me this week is Bill Walsh, who is our head of trading for the Americas. Bill, welcome to Straight Signals. Tim, thanks for having me. Absolutely. It is great to always have the voice of the trading desk here. We've done it once before. We're going to get your perspective today. Bill, when, when we were doing prep for this, I thought it was hilarious. You described yourself as the Forrest Gump of the FX trading universe. So I wanted to start with your formative years, You know, the equivalent of being at the University of Alabama and being an all-American kick returner for Bear Bryant. What is, what is that formative experience for you as it was for Forrest Gump?
1: Yeah, I think I was probably on the very opposite end of that spectrum as
0: a <laughs> kicker and punter at
1: Columbia University, which had the longest uh, losing streak in football history, but
0: I remember um, that, yes.
1: Yes, yeah, so um but that also taught me a lot about persistence and that's been quite valuable in my uh trading career, but um no, I mean, I came out of college in New York and I wanted to go into real estate, so I worked at a real estate firm, commercial real estate working on a draw and tried that for about six to nine months and in the recession of 1990, 1991 and found a job in the Wall Street Journal Helped help one of looking for uh, someone to help write speeches for a branch manager at a Japanese bank, DKB. And it specifically said uh, Ivy League, educated applicants. So I went there and they had a, um, a rotational program uh, similar to the one we have here at State Street, where I moved around different areas of the bank. And nine months to a year later, I came through to the trading room and it felt very familiar to my experiences as a as an athlete, um, the intensity, the focus. To me, that just, just seemed like the location that suited my personality the best. And coincidentally, I got lucky because they were making a change on the trading team. They had just brought over uh, a senior trader from Tokyo who had been the dollar mark trader there. And DKB had a really large franchise in FX at that point, um, while the the New York branch office was kind of sleepy. So he was like a 28, 29-year-old trader, and he wanted to train his own assistant. And I happened to be there with absolutely no experience. And so in I went. And as I said, I came in pretty much right after George Soros broke the Bank of England. And FX was a very hot place to be and, and very much in the news at that point. We had a eight machine in the trading yeah. room. It, it wasn't in use, but it had been not so long ago that it was in use. So the markets had basically moved to Reuters Dealing. And the whole thing about Reuters Dealing, which is really changed in the market, is that each bank branch had a FX desk and they had traders who were given uh, risk budgets to to make markets for other banks so there was sort of this market within the market which was commercial banks calling each other for prices and a bank like UBS you know in Switzerland alone i think they had f- four branches that you could call and so the amount of fx spot traders was probably 15 to 20 times of what it is now but that added a certain amount of volatility to the market but you know as i started you know, I remember telling my mom, uh, you know, all the video games I played. My dexterity really came in handy because, you know, you would be calling out to banks for prices and picking up and getting prices and trying to turn liquidity very quickly. And uh, it was intense. I mean, you would, you know, show up at 6:30, 6:45, and look up from your desk, and it's about one o'clock. There was just a, it was a, a very sort of high-pressure, high-intense environment.
0: I want to go back to the early years in a second, particularly some of the formative experiences. But actually, it's interesting to me that we have electronic trading now doing everything. And in theory, liquidity should be so much better. Volatility is certainly lower. How would you compare it, though? Given you said there are so many people trading FX commercial banks, you know, this was prior, I guess, to a lot of consolidation, especially. Would you describe the liquidity environment then as being more friendly than it is now, I think it was more
1: friendly as a market maker because you just had more opportunities. Uh, you know, this was pre-EBS. And, yeah. you know, as as I went from DKB to Lehman Brothers, they had just hired a team from Credit Suisse, Dave Og and Mike Kahn. And, and they kind of had this model where they would make prices to anyone at any time. And they had a Reuters call-out sheet that had something like 260 banks that you could call. And the deal was every bank was obligated to make a price on 10 million units. And so we had three assistants. I was the head assistant and two other junior assistants. One or two assistants were just picking up and making prices continuously throughout the day. And what would happen was you would have these big, you know, especially around like a non-farm payroll day, you could have 50 to 100 basis points of arbitrage opportunity where the broker in Germany may be 20 offered while we're getting paid by a bank in New York at 90. And so all these banks that were making prices all over the world had had different axes, and and so there was definitely it was a friendlier environment for market makers because there was just so much less price discovery than you have now, right. um, and and there was also more market makers. So I think there there were more people. If say if zero sum game, there was you know more winners and losers during a day, which increased the amount of volatility you would
0: see at the highs and the lows. Mm. Let's think about then periods of volatility or just periods of of interest in that career. You mentioned getting started in the late '90s, and you brought up actually Soros breaking the bank. And funnily enough, the the first trader we had on this podcast, Pete Vincent, talked about that as well as a as a kind of formative experience. He wasn't trading yet, but he was reading the news and thought, "Oh, this is interesting. I could take my economics degree and and think about things like this." For me, I worked in rates in the early 2000s and in 2003 in the summer, there was a huge period of volatility and I worked in the US swap market and spreads blew out. What about for you? What really sticks in your mind as incidents or episodes that stand out?
1: I think like the first big one for me was 1994. I mean, it was the year I got married, but also it was (laughs) uh, the year that, you know, I was a head dolly end trader at Lehman Brothers and, you know, we had sort of this dollar sell-off that led to, you know, intervention in, do- in dollar yen, and in the, the year sort of culminated at the end of the year in in the Mexican uh, crisis. And Lehman had a prop team there that was uh, very uh, heavily positioned for uh, a Mexican devaluation, and they did quite well. And so that was sort of my first experience with a group that really put on a massive trade, and and it really worked out very well. And so we had dealt certainly with. With hedge funds and had a dialogue with them but this was sort of a first-hand experience for me on the implications of really putting on risk and proportion and having a strategy to do it because honestly as a spot market maker you kind of were focused on fundamentals but it was so busy during the day that you really didn't think about fundamentals until you know after the dust settled but at at Lehman that was that was a very formative move for me that that I remember pretty well and then of course you know you had the the asian crisis in 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 98 and and september 11th of course was was very impactful for for yeah. different reasons because we had a lot of brokers that were in the building and DKB I'd actually worked in in the world trade center um yeah. so yeah there there are all these these benchmarks along the way that give you experiences that you sort of fall back on and I think that's kind of what's going on with today's market everyone obviously is familiar with the big you know asset debt bubble that has been inflating since the great financial crisis yeah. with whatever it was 18 trillion of negative yielding debt and now the Fed's hiked rates you know 525 basis points and History would, would tell you that we should be close to some sort of finality, but it just seems like it's stretching out um, a lot longer than people think. So I think that's kind of what's happened this year with a lot of the macro traders is that what they expected to happen is taking a lot longer than, than their experience tells them it should have happened. Um, yeah, But at the same time, the timing is the hard part. The, the strategy is easy. It's the tactical part of the trade that's always the tricky part.
0: I mean, what do you rely on? In terms of playing for that, and I'm thinking here very philosophically about, you know, what sort of frameworks do you build for yourself, or have you built over the years that help you assess when is the right timing, or when when should I just stay away? This isn't the right right time to do it. I'm I'm really curious as as far as the psychology you employ to take those risks or to avoid taking the risks if it just doesn't appear to be the right time. Well
1: and that's the interesting thing you know that's how the electronification of the market has really changed the feel for the market w- when you had voice brokers you could almost feel the sense of urgency you know mm. almost read the tape by the the volume of trades going through or the sense of panic and now you can't re- you don't really see that the prices don't seem to gap as much as they used to. You know, certainly in in some of the emerging market currencies and, and you know, the for, the curves move like that. But in, in general, in G10, it's been very orderly. And I think that's sort of confusing for traders when, you know, you see a strong number and yields pop higher, but oh, the VIX goes lower. You know, I think everyone's sort of looking at the same data and trying to figure it out. But, you know, for me, I think it goes back to being an English pager and just reading as much as I can possibly read to get a sense of what the consensus is. And then yeah. coming up for what is the theme that the market's currently uh, attached to and, and where to, how's that gonna play out? And at what point is the market view wrong? And yeah. where, where are we gonna get the most price action when people try to pivot on that that trade?
0: Well, let's talk about that then and talk about where things are now, where the market might be wrong. I mean, we're recording this on a Monday afternoon. Where the dollar is yet again recovered from a a sort of a weak start to to start rocketing higher. We've got the DXY pushing close to 107 now. It seems to be the consensus view. I mean, there was a lot of consensus forecasts for dollar weakness that are being proved wrong, and I'm guessing will be marked to market before too long. What is kind of your out of consensus view right now?
1: Well, I think it's interesting that, you know, after the last Fed meeting, we've sort of seen these bear flatteners, which are typically bad for risk and that you know the dollar is at the year high certainly against you know dollar yen and the euro while some of the popular carry trades um, of the first half of the year mexico and brazil um, we're, we're nowhere near the dollar high. And, and you know, I do think that, that some of these Latin American countries have been ahead of the curve with their rate moves. And if the Fed's going to be higher for longer and they're starting to cut rates, yeah, it'll probably be good for the fixed income markets there, but I don't think it's going to be great for the currency markets. So um, I do think, it appears to me that, you know, the, the U.S. data in the middle of the year, sort of took a little bit of dip, but it seems like it's coming back, and, and it feels like the U.S. consumer is able to withstand higher rates. And we're starting to see some of the data, even globally, be it China or parts of Europe, are starting to to come back a little stronger. So, we went from where the market had you know hikes priced into the U.K. curve, then they took them out. Things look pretty dire. To now, numbers are starting to rebound in the U.S. I'm coming around to Lee's view, which is. You know, if you look at the election cycle next year, do they want to be hiking into the elections? Probably not, so maybe they should get ahead of this, and maybe a hike in November makes sense and what will that do for risk you know i, I just can't see how it's going to be good for risk. I mean every hard landing starts out as a soft landing, and that, that yeah. kind of feels like where we are right now, which is you know the markets get wrapping its head around the fact that they mean it higher for longer and no, they don't want inflation at 2.5%. To get to 2% is going to be impossible without a hard landing.
0: And so, what do you do in that scenario with the dollar? Do you just play for this to, to continue on rising? I mean, a hard landing ultimately probably does bring Fed easing, but there could be a long way to go before we get there. I think that's what's
1: difficult about the current environment because people are reluctant to load up on the dollar because. We've already had a big dollar move. So, you know, for me, usually these things happen with a more aggressive spike. And as we said, you know, right ahead of one fifty in dollar yen and right on one hundred five mm-hmm. at the euro, I think we're going to sort of have a grinder kind of back and forth until we do get more hawkish rhetoric out of uh, Powell that can get us to the next level. But for now, it just sort of feels like you got to buy any dollar dips going forward. Yeah. And some of the emerging market currencies will probably come off more aggressively than the major currencies.
0: And let's talk about the yen. You mentioned formative experience of 1994 and 1995 and periods of yen intervention. And we are close to these key levels, yet we've seen no real hint that intervention is coming. Do you think it's on the horizon or even if not, I mean, what level potentially brings it into picture?
1: Yeah, I think the market kind of forces the hand of the central banks once they say, well, here's a line in the sand. And, Mm. you know, they're going to take it to that line in the sand. Now, I I would say it's probably closer to 155 than 150. I think they were kind of hoping for the Fed hiking cycle to end and maybe reverse before they started to normalize their rates. I don't think they're going to be able to wait that long. So intervention to me is going to be kind of futile unless they change curve control or, or get their rates back in positive territory so I think that could be a trade we could we could see uh, move pretty aggressively if we if we get back above 155 but intervention yeah I, I think it's probably likely but unless they do some fundamental change over there I think the market's going to be buying any dollar dips um, I, don't, yeah. I don't think the market's quite as long as it was um, the last time we were up here so I don't think the reaction is going to be quite as big.
0: The rest of the G3 or G3 plus sterling, I suppose, I mean, in a lot of senses, you could say the euro is not particularly cheap when you look at it on a trade-weighted basis. It's very expensive, actually, versus the renminbi. It's It's expensive to a lesser degree against sterling. And you have all of these fundamental flaws that are starting to emerge. We had PMI data earlier this week, and the flash estimates last week were pretty weak. It does seem as though, fundamentally at least, the euro is headed for a recession in H2. But do you suspect that's priced in, in euro dollar or is there further weakness to come there? Yeah, it,
1: it feels like there's further weakness to go, especially oil uh, where it is. I, I yeah. just feel like the UK and the eurozone um, are, are going to struggle. So yeah, I, I think we have more room in that on both of those trades. As I said, I think the market wants to wait for a bounce up to 107 or 108 to really get involved. But this might just keep going where the market will miss that move. So, you know, yeah, the German exports obviously have collapsed. It it just feels to me that they want a, a lower currency and I think the market um will help them help them get there.
0: Yeah. Last big topic and it's on volatility, it's to do with carry currencies. You know, we have a measure of FX turbulence that looks at the unusualness of volatility as well as the unusualness of correlations amongst currencies and This this thing has collapsed. And typically what you see is carry outperformance in that environment. And it stands to reason it's volatility and carry kind of run in opposing fashion. And when one goes up, the other goes down. It sounds to me like an environment where that's going to be challenged, and yet you have this low turbulence and low actual, low realized, low implied volatility environment if you had to pick one side of that, that's going to break, which side do you think that's going to be?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's the big question because it just feels it does feel like sentiment is very negative. But if you look at seasonality, um, Mm. you know, the fourth quarter is typically good and especially for oil, the fourth quarter, you know, oil should come lower. So that certainly is the trade that looks like it would be the least expected, which is, you know, we get risk hangs in. Okay. And, and being long some of these high-yielding currencies plays out, but for me, it it just feels like I think the Fed has to be a little bit more aggressive. Mm. Um, anecdotally, it, here in the U.S., it, the economy is doing quite well. Home sales are are back, selling qu- quickly. So I think if they really if they need to protect the back end of the curve, and if they say they're going to give up on that two percent inflation, then you know you're gonna you're gonna have you know ten-year yields, but you know back above five percent. So yeah. Um, I I think they need to be hawkish, and I think that's probably going to be negative for risk. But as I also said, I also feel like that's a consensus trade, and that could be why volatility is sort of so low, because nobody um, really wants to put that trade on in size.
0: I'm thinking particularly about Latin American currencies here. They've been such good performers this year. Is the carry-on offer in, say, MEX or Brazil enough to insulate it from any big flare-ups in volatility that such action might bring on, it's going to get so volatile as a consequence of that, that it almost doesn't even really matter what they pay you. It's, it's, it's in a world of pain. I mean, I'm not sure what your sense of positioning would be like. We don't really see either of them as particularly crowded in our holdings metrics.
1: Yeah, no, I think that some of that trade has been unwound, um, the long max trade. I do find myself always hoping for the most volatile outcomes. So (laughs) I think you kind of have to know that that's your tendency. Yeah. So I I, I could see how, if you look at the beginning of the year, we've got a lot of room to the upside for dollar max. But at the same time, if things are going to hang in there, those yields look pretty good. So I I would tend to believe that you, you look to buy dips in dollar max, but this is also a kind of market where you want to keep your powder dry and i think once the horses start leading the bar and then you'll have an opportunity to put the trades on
0: right last question to put you on the spot favorite trade for the rest of this year both sides long and short
1: i kind of like cad um so it feels to me like cad max looks pretty good i think the other trade too is i'm I'm a little surprised by how much the market dislikes aussie that i think the hatred for China is is a little bit overdone, so mm. I think uh, you could see some of these uh, Aussie crosses do pretty well. So short uh, Euro Aussie to me. Those are sort of two commodity related currencies where I, th- I think, you know, if if the Fed sort of doesn't overdo it, and some of these numbers seem like they are rebounding, Xi coming to the U.S. to meet Biden, perhaps that we see a thaw of that relationship. Yeah. Um, you could you could see some of those currencies do well. So it feels to me like. Latin America maybe uh, struggles and some of these Asian currencies maybe hang in there. But yeah, to be perfectly transparent, there aren't any trades that I'm really uh, super high conviction on right now.
0: (laughs) It's a very difficult environment to be, be that way. And as we've discussed, there are a lot of things that don't quite agree with each other. But I think everybody will agree, Bill. It's been really valuable spending time with you and getting your views. And I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. We'll have to do it again when. uh, Oh, thanks a lot, Tim.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on.
0: Appreciate it. Yeah, we've got to have some more war stories the next time as well. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Thanks for listening to this week's edition of Street Signals from the research team at State Street Global Markets. This podcast and all of our research can be found at our web portal, Insights. There, you'll be able to find all of our latest thinking on macroeconomics and markets, where we leverage our deep experience in research on investor behavior, inflation, risk, and media sentiment, all of which goes into building an award-winning strategy product. If you're a client of State Street, hit us up there at globalmarkets.statestreet.com. We'll see you next time. This communication is provided by State Street Bank and Trust Company, hereafter referred to as State Street, and is for informational purposes only, and is not intended to suggest or recommend any transaction, investment, or investment strategy. It does not constitute investment research, nor does it purport to be comprehensive or intended to replace the exercise of an investor's own, careful, independent review and judgment regarding any investment decision. This communication and the information herein does not constitute investment legal or tax advice, and is not a solicitation to buy or sell securities or any financial instrument, nor is it intended to constitute a binding contractual arrangement or commitment by State Street of any kind. The information provided does not take into account any particular investment objectives, strategies, investment horizon, or tax status. The views expressed herein are the views of State Street as of the date specified and are subject to change without notice based on market and other conditions. The information provided herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable at the time of publication, Nonetheless, we make no representations or assurances that the information is complete or accurate, and you should not place any reliance on said information. State Street hereby disclaims any warranty and all liability, whether arising in contract, tort, or otherwise, for any losses, liabilities, damages, expenses, or costs, either direct, indirect, consequential, special, or punitive, arising from or in connection with any use of this communication and or the information herein. State Street or its affiliates may from time to time as principal or agent for its own account or for those of its clients have positions in and or actively trade in financial instruments or other products identical to or economically related to those discussed in this communication. State Street may have a commercial relationship with issuers of financial instruments or other products discussed in this communication. This communication may contain information deemed to be forward-looking statements. These statements are based on assumptions, analyses, and expectations of State Street in light of its experience and perception of historical trends, current conditions, expected future developments, and other factors it believes appropriate under the circumstances. All information is subject to change without notice. This communication or any portion hereof may not be redistributed without the prior written consent of State Street. Past performance is no guarantee of future results.